Another Spring by Kenneth Rexroth. The seasons revolve and the years change with no assistance or supervision. The moon, without taking thought, moves in its cycle, full, crescent, and full again. The white moon enters the heart of the river. The air is drugged with azalea blossoms. Deep in the night, a pine cone falls. Our campfire dies out in the empty mountains. The sharp stars flicker in the tremulous branches. The lake is black, bottomless, in the crystalline night. High in the sky, the northern crown is cut in half by the dim summit of a snow peak. O heart, heart, so singularly intransient and corruptible, here we lie entranced by the starlit water and moments that should each last forever slide unconsciously by us like water. Tonight we're going to dive into the subject of energy, which is the next Parmian line. If I could have somebody turn off the lights in, on that side. Thank you. And it's a harder uh, subject to tackle. Uh, but let me uh, frame it by saying that presence, presence is undiminished energy. It's not diminished. Now, does that mean someone who abides in presence doesn't get tired? Of course not. So the energy we're looking at is not the waxing and waning of our physical fatigue, but that which sees, that which holds. And one of the reasons that... uh, When we talk about the hindrances, perhaps the hardest, one of the hardest hindrances to really get uh, some orientation to is sleepiness. Because we think when we're sleepy, how can we possibly be aware? So that's just sort of like the off switch to our efforts, to our encouragement, to the very light itself. And so we sort of give up and head to the sack. But if you're patient enough and you actually can pause before heading to bed, you'll notice that there's something that can see the sleepiness, can observe, can hold the sleepiness without any diminishment of itself. And that's the energy that we are pointing towards in presence. 
doesn't mean that various frames of states of mind come passing through presence. It's just that they are allowed to pass through. They're not made into something unique and identified with. So they're more like clouds passing through a sky. The sky holds all formations of the clouds, but is itself not contained by the clouds. So that's the energy that I'm pointing towards, but I want to get a sense that <clears throat> of how energy as we know it begins to form itself uh, in ways that we can actually observe. And if we think of it, you know, the Einstein equation that energy and matter are um, mutable from one to another. They, they are convertible. In psychic terms can be seen. And that is when we are uh, present with our minds, we can see the formation of a thought. Now, that thought is the first manifestation of energy coming into form. Right? Energy itself um, is uh, not easily observable. But when it comes in, when it starts manifesting, when it comes into form, it comes in through thought. Is thought material? Well, not exactly. Is it energy? Well, yes and no. You can see that it's already arising out of something unmanifest into something that's manifest. And you can watch the formation of a thought, the creation of a thought out of nothing. From where does this thought come from? It comes from nothing. And it's so interesting because what we do with the thought, we invest in that manifestation, that, that birth of something, and through our investment in it, it becomes something very tangible and real. And it turns into an action, and the action turns, as the Buddha said, into habit, into a deed, and then into a habit, and then into entrenched character. From what? And the character can easily be seen. And my own unproven theory is that it also, in, after a long enough culturally induced agreement, it becomes almost a genetic product within us. And we carry it as form between births. And the, even the form, I believe, now I, I mean, this is not, this is guesswork, okay? So it's not something I've seen in some kind of mysterious way. But my feeling is, the intuitive sense is, that, that uh, the body shapes itself from the pre-existing assumptions of all of our past uh, species, and that's what the genetic material we carry within us. And that perpetuates itself generation after generation with slight modification, slight modifications over time as new adapt adaptations are, are um, assimilated. And that is the movement of energy and matter as they play between the two forms and expressions of themselves. But I think it's very interesting and 
to encourage, to see that first manifestation from energy of the first material manifestation of as, as thought comes out from nowhere. And it, that can be observed. That's directly observable. Form is directly observable. Now, I want to use tonight uh, an analogy from uh, physics. So I have to go way back to college courses. And I want to use uh, the simile of electricity passing through a current. Now, just changing subjects uh, for a moment, for a moment. Resistance is the force that opposes the flow of current through a conductor. So resistance is what resists the movement of the electrons through a conductor. And uh, it's obviously uh, has a good side. The benefit of resistance is that uh, when you turn on a light, for instance, the filament of the light bulb is creating resistance to the passage of that electricity, and that's why it lights up. And also when you turn on an electric heater, the filaments uh, light up and create heat. So light and heat are, um, are two products of resistance. Now, when energy, this undiminished energy of presence, passes through you and I, this is where the, this is the analogy, it, it has, it, it flows, and there is a resistance to that flow. That resistance is our individuation, is the sense of you and I. We are, create, we are a rub in the flow of the current of life. <laughs> a little applause would be nice. <laughs> but the point is, is that when we're in presence, that sense of individuation, of being cut off from, is not there. And so there is no resistance. And the whole thing is seen in a very different orientation, a very different view. But when there is resistance, which we actively create ongoing, we actively assert a resistance to the movement and energy of life so that we can get the product of life. In this case, it's not heat or light, it's me. Well, it's not actually without its heat. The heat of me is the pain of our formation. Right? It's, so, Dharma practice is coming back to the undiminished flow, is allowing the flow to move without obscuration. And so what we have to do is be willing to look at where and how we're resisting that creates the formation of I all along the way. See? And the beauty of, of it and the ugliness of it at the same time is that where the resistance is heating up within us 
is our pain, where we suffer. And so in Buddhist terms, that is the indication of where it is that we are demanding self-formation in that moment, away from the abiding unity that's there without the resistance. See, isn't that interesting? You see, we can look at this thing in so many different ways, and I'm just trying to give you multiple perceptions of the problem so that you'll work with one of them. Which one, this is not for enjoyment. It's just, oh wow, that's interesting. I, I can see that in myself. Let's, go, let's move with that. And then what we want to do is unleash um, any need to resist and let life, the energy of life, move through, through us undisturbed. And that's called presence. Isn't that interesting? It's just so... Now, if wisdom doesn't govern the flow of the movement of energy, that is, if we start releasing some of this energy without it being governed by wisdom, it's going to recoil back into that form of resistance because that's the loop that it's most easily attracted to is where the resistance is. So the energy, if not followed by wisdom, will lead to a greater sense of self trying to manipulate itself through the energy field. For instance, if effort, which flows from energy, when we have energy, the next step that what leads to effort is energy. And so the next step after energy is effort, force, willful fault force. If we're not aware of how and what energy um, feels like in terms of resistance, we are going to try very hard to free up, free ourselves up from resistance. You see? You see the paradox of that? our efforts will actually create more resistance and therefore further define myself as I bear down and try even harder. Because that's the loop that energy knows in ourselves. So what this calls for is a different way and a different approach to the problem. Rather than a tension, white knuckle, ambitious approach, which is itself resistance, you see, but we're not seen from that point of view. We're just trying to get somewhere. And when we're trying to get somewhere, we forget that the person who's trying to get there is the, is the object of the resistance itself, is the manifestation of the resistance itself. And we just try harder and harder and we keep building upon ourselves as we try to white-knuckle our way through our spiritual progress. So this needs a complete different orientation to the problem if this is to be solved. Okay, so let me go to where the resistance is arising. Now, there are certain key factors that we can bring to our spiritual lives that help align that energy so that it moves in alignment with the wisdom rather than in alignment with the resistance. One of those is curiosity. And I hope... 
each of you have a healthy dose of it. Because there's nothing as, as uplifting uh, to a spiritual journey as curiosity. Because you see what curiosity does? It takes you beyond uh, the known into an area in which we don't know much about. Or you wouldn't be curious about it if you knew about it. So it takes you into the unknown. So already you're beyond the resistance that you have shielded life with by labeling everything just what you know, which is a kind of resistance when you say, I know what that is. You're resisting it being the unknown. The mind is forming around it and saying, I know what that is, and it's a resistance of it being anything else but what the mind has determined it to be. So no knowledge, and I don't want to get too, this gets a little heady, so just bear with me here. So knowledge is actually a type and form of resistance to life. So curiosity takes us outside of our knowledge. Because we're curious. What is this? What's going on here? Wow, this is so interesting. You see, it invites a different perspective rather than one in which we are determined and secure within the known world. It invites us out of that security, out of that known world, into a world of, of interest and wonder. So curiosity, inviting curiosity within our practice is tremendously helpful. Instead of just trying to cope with your meditation... <laughs> just getting through it I put in my 40 minutes today check it off there's no checking off meditation right? invite a curiosity into it what's going on when you sit down so, okay let me see what's going on here what's going on in here and all of a sudden the energy gets freed you can feel it you can feel it its buoyancy as it moves not with a drudgery but with a lightness. And that takes us to the next component of skillful meditation which aligns energy away from resistance and towards fulfillment and that is investigation. Investigation and curiosity are very closely connected. But investigation is really the willingness to unblock where resistance is. So when you find yourself in trouble, trouble somewhere, difficulty, when you find yourself in resisting something in life, your willingness to go there and explore it and investigate it is a movement of wisdom to unblock resistance. You think, what's going on here? What's why am I holding this view? It feels, it's so... And you sit there and you feel the pain of it. And with enough perseverance and patience, often that view is unlocked. And with it comes sometimes a catharsis of where, what, because so much energy has been trapped within that particular difficulty especially if it's a severe, severely resisted difficulty like trauma when we were young or some such thing, and we start coming, having flashbacks to that, or suddenly there's all this energy 
which has been used to form a, a, um, a wall of denial, hardened resistance to that experience comes tumbling down. And with it, all the unblocked energy now comes rushing like a dam was broken. And you can get, it can be very disturbing to the person to feel that amount of energy. And some people can't sleep. And it's one of the uh, indications we need as Dharma teachers, especially on residential retreats, we need to stay very in touch with people to see if they're sleeping well and what their energy level is because sometimes this energy can be unleashed in a way that is not completely um, okay with the individual, with the yogi, and it can become very disturbing. So this catharsis release can sometimes come as a dam being broken, but mostly it comes in terms of just an uplift in ourselves. It's more graduated than... uh, demonstrative and you can just feel over time a general uplifting of spirit also called joy happiness it just things just aren't quite so problematic and that's because the energy is no longer arresting itself at the level of resistance it's being freed up more and more to find its natural course its natural channel, which is unity and the accompanying expression of unity is joy. So there's also um, a third component that's very helpful and essential, and that is um, coupling energy with action. Converting theory to action. And I noticed, for, and there are many long-term meditators who are extraordinarily proficient at Buddhist theory. They've heard it. They've meditated quite likely for a long period of time. They've heard all the Dharma talks. You can begin to put one and one together to make two in your own mind. You have it all drawn out. And it's all theory. And yet, the moment something difficult happens in their life, all hell breaks loose because the theory isn't converted into action. And we stay in the form of resistance even though the mind knows intellectually the playing field of what needs to happen. The body's intelligence, the intelligence engrossed in the action remains very much in ignorance. And this can create a great deal of of, um, well, of despair for long-term meditators. But it also shows whether we have walked our talk. You know, difficulties happen throughout the day to us. Where's the letting go? Where's the release? Where's the, as Narayan, one of my dear friend teachers says, where's the liberation? Where's the liberation in that moment? And we find ourselves more entrenched than accepting. More resistance, resistant than allowing. And instead of becoming despairing, which can lead to people being so um, 
having such enormous self-doubt that they leave meditation entirely, bring some curiosity to it. Say, okay, so you know how to do it. You know what you're supposed to do. But the doing of it, and first what has to be seen, first it has to be seen. You have to feel the pain in order to cure the pain. You can't theorize about the pain and expect the difficulty, the resistance to be alleviated. You have to see it. This whole thing only works through consciousness, through making unconscious conscious. We have to show up for our difficulty. And then with patience, you can begin to observe what it is that feels so meaningful, so important for you to hold on to the view. And as you begin to feel the rub of holding on to the view and the lacerations that occur when everyone else is asking you to go a different way, but you're going to be stubborn and you're going to do your, and you feel, you know, it's like the abrasions, like falling onto asphalt and dragging your body across asphalt. You can feel the, the scar tissue from that. You have to ask yourself whether it's worth the holding on. And you have to ask yourself, what is it that's back there that feels so diminished by letting go? What part of me feels um, that if I let go, some that I wouldn't be the same person I am? That it's only through my righteousness and my anger, through my um, demands that I can come to the fulfillment of self, the self-fulfillment that I need to live. You know, meditation does not make you passive. I can't tell you how many people who begin meditation have the fear that this is going to make them uh, sedate. If what they're really afraid of, I think, is that their anger, uh, which has been the only way that they have been able to energize themselves towards cause or towards a, an injustice, is that sense of, of um, righteous anger, indignation, has been their motivating force. And they don't have any faith that there could be anything else that would drive them forward except the anger. And when they're asked not to react to their anger, they feel like they've lost the hope of being or maintaining their sense of injustice, injust, justice and injustice in the world. And they feel crippled because they're asking, we're asking them to give up the motivating drive that has kept them engaged, socially engaged often, in their conflict and struggle. But what is that about, for God's sake? What's been just looking at the difficulty of that in the lives that are split and separated and isolated because of that form of motivation and how it plays itself out in dialogue and within conflict and should be enough to 
radicalize the way you behave and say, enough of that, enough of this. If I can't find a way to heal through my actions, then I don't want the actions at all, no matter how righteous I feel in their delivery. And what you, what you begin to find is that when in, the more deeply embedded we become within that presence, it doesn't lose the sense of injustice. It doesn't just agree that the homeless, it doesn't just become passive to the difficulties of life. It becomes very engaged, but it becomes engaged from a very different perspective, from a different dimension in which the energy is moving from the heart and not from anger. And that's a very different way to hold conflict than to create more of it through our action. Now, what is it and how does energy become bound? If presence is unbounded energy. What is it? Just what is it that creates the 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 need uh, to resist life? What is that about? I think that's a very interesting question. Because there's if we look at it we can superficially we can see, you know, the psychic scarring, there's defeatism, there's uh, the pursuit of pleasure or the avoidance of pain, there's fear, there's desire. Let's just look at some of these things. Just, we're just going to take a few of them and look at how the energy becomes bound through these states of mind when the states of mind are not seen for what they are. And the first one I'd like to speak about briefly is denial. Because we are masters at denial. If there is a defense mechanism that is primary for this species, denial. I don't, I, it's, it's not the easiest one for me to maintain anymore. Because it's so clear that as soon as you open to the truth of what's occurring, then there's a, there's a whole release of not only trauma associated with that orientation, but also just abiding goodwill. And denial so clearly is a conscious, deliberate intention to turn away from the facts that are presenting themselves. And it's amazing that couples or intrapsychically and each of us can have these difficulties that go on for year after year with a mutual consent not to mention them to one another, to avoid discussing it. It's just amazing. I know a um, very a senior teacher who smokes. But smoking is so uh, antithetical to her uh, philosophy of what a spiritual person should be 
that she doesn't own the fact that she smokes. And everybody knows she does. And she doesn't at all concede the point. Never, her family never mentions it. She never mentions it. Her students never mention it. No one ever says anything. And there is, it's like this elephant in the room. Now, so I know that can go on well into a person's spiritual life. But let's look at the elephants in our room and what we're avoiding through our denial. Or what we're avoiding in terms of our own personal pain. As if turning our back on it, like a little kid, we really believe this tactic works. If I shut my eyes tight enough, I just pretend it will go away. But it doesn't. It keeps having its effect upon us. The tighter we close our eyes, the more effect it has on us. And this sense of denial is just a refusal to be with what is, which is resistance. And it can be as dramatic as a denial of death, as if we were going to get by that somehow by not talking about it, or as subtle as uh, just deliberately not addressing something that needs to be addressed on an ongoing basis. But we need to really, if we're interested in the freedom of the Buddha, this is a... um, defense mechanism that really we have to come to terms with because we have invested so much resistance into partaking fully of life in an undiminished way. So to invite curiosity and investigation into those areas that we deny. Another form that resistance takes in terms of how we bound our energy is habit and conditioning. Habit is a refusal to see anything new. It's maintaining the security of only what I know. And so I perform out of habit and I can perform unconsciously so that I don't even have to be involved with my life. I can just be on rote on memory. And I don't have to show up for my life for that reason. So it can just be a glossing over. And conditioning, of course, is just drawing from the past what was worked in the past as my, as my map for the present moment. The present moment isn't even noticed. It's the map of the past and how I navigated it successfully before. That's what is in front of me. That's what I notice. So as you hear how this energy gets bound, see that it's always unconscious. A deliberate not seeing. Deliberate intention not to see. And the only place not seeing can go is into thought. Because if it's not in thought, you're seeing. 
So you've got to think your way out of the present moment, not to be a part of the present moment. That's the only way you get out of the present moment. So all of these defense mechanisms are, are shoots and ladders from the present moment into thought. And that's what habit is. Habit is, I'm just going to, you know, I just, I just want everything to be flatland. I don't want any, I just, I don't want any disturbances. I want to, I want to navigate this thing just absolutely flatland. No bumps. Now that's nirvana, right? <laughs> if I can just get there. And if I can just bury myself deeply enough into my unconscious and put everything else into automatic pilot, maybe I can get there. That's the logic. That's the logic of habit. You just and the and the mind starts sinking down into the unconscious, into the darkness of the thought and the malice and all of the accompanying imagery away from the present. And all of us know people who are so have so long buried themselves and they're unconscious that you can barely have a conversation with them where they can come out. Sometimes you can't even get them out. They're so locked in to their thought. And I thought I would mention fear and desire. Because fear and desire are defense mechanisms, shunts, blockages of energy. Fear says the energy is frozen. I will freeze this energy. I will freeze it. And in, in, in fact, we talk about you know being frozen in fear. In fact, we, see, we're not willing to move. We can't move. We're we st- we're stuck in that. The energy is stuck. It's it's just dead. Can't move forward. Can't move back. We're stuck. It's like deer in the headlights. Part of the trauma of our thinking. And then desire is the pursuit of imagination. It's thinking, oh gosh, uh, I wish I had this, or I wish I had that, or I don't, I would like this better than that, and this world will be, and I will be, and someday. It's all of that. It's, it's just fanciful thinking. It's just imagination, spirited imagination. Deliciously seductive, because it can promise you anything. You want to be king? Shut your eyes. I'll make you king. <laughs> Give me five minutes and I can walk you right into kingdom. Queendom. Just with a good story. Right? That's why we like a good story. It takes us away. It gives us another location to be besides the one we're in. So, you begin to see that the mind's job, what it tries to do, is to shut and keep, keep confining the energy to its forms of resistance so that you can have, we each can have our individual lives within it. And that means you will, we will be unconscious to most of our life while we're in it because that's what's necessary for resistance to be present. For, for resistance to, to arise requires our unconscious habitual tendency through life. So the more we invest in 
just getting along and not showing up and the habits of our of our uh, conditioning and allowing our imagination just to go unarrested into all the different forms and expressions of our desires and we never face our fear. Well, that's the definition of a life that's lived in resistance. You have a very strong sense of yourself. It may not be a very nice image, but it will have an image. The mind doesn't care whether it's a good image or a bad image. It just wants an image. If you have a horrendous image, that's good enough. One that's fearful and paranoid, that's okay. You're formed. That's all it wants from you. It doesn't want you to be without pain. It wants you to be formed. Our heart wants us to be without pain. So if we want to be without pain, we've got to go to a different organ because this one isn't going to do it. And one last one, which I think is also at the crux of Western civilization. When I was in uh, Asia, uh, everywhere in Asia, one of the uh, more renowned Ajans of ancient days was an Ajahn called Ajahn Mun, M-U-N. And he's a, they had a picture of him, literally, like that. It said that when he had malaria, he, he would refuse to go to bed, set up with it, you know, all through. The, so that, you get it, you get it, you, you understand. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that picture, I was doing a three-month retreat in an enclosed little cabin, and that picture was just, <laughs> well, after about one hour of looking at that thing, I took it and <laughs> turned it over because I didn't need that. That kind of ferocity wasn't, my culture, I was ferocious enough with myself. I needed a little kindness, not that kind. But the Thais have a, a very kind of laid-back attitude, and they need the encouragement of, of ferocity to get them going. So for their culture, that image suits, but not for ours. I needed some heart picture. I needed some picture of a heart up there so, <laughs> to invite me forward. And... Because what I kept facing and what was the main form and expression of my own resistance and probably for most of you as well is self-doubt. It's just the ongoing, we perpetuate it. And if we have a good meditation, uh, somehow we never evaluate, reevaluate ourselves, reevaluate the doubt that we have from the good things that happen. We just think that we snuck by and we're lucky. That if life really knew us the way we know ourselves, it would have erased us a long time ago. And that sense of self-diminishment, of not owning ourselves completely, of not owning our place on earth, of not feeling totally embodied in ourselves, of not allowing a total manifestation of this energy. You see how you can just feel how the dark clouds start containing and resisting the natural life expression, which is like this. It's like the sun. The natural life expression of everyone in here is like that. Beautifully radiant. But the clouds on the horizon formed by our doubt keep us very tainted and, and contained. 
And we can see it in the eyes, you know. The eyes are really the gateway of our energy. And you can look into people's eyes and see how arrested they have made themselves. Each of us make ourselves arrested around the energy of our, of our, of our sense of inadequacy. And so I just really want to encourage a straightforward approach to that problem. Don't deny it's there. It doesn't do you any good to circumvent it. Ten years later, it'll be exactly the same as it is now. Perhaps it's more so from the growing resistance we've given the problem. Let's just bring it out and be curious about it. Bring curiosity. Don't bring uh, self-doubt to an exploration of doubt. It just keeps imploding upon itself. Oh, I can't stand what I'm going to see. Get interested in what you're going to see. It's not about you, believe it or not. It really isn't. And this then leads to something that I wanted to um, talk about. And that is ways to arouse that energy. To keep that energy moving and flourishing within us. To keep ourselves from, from imploding on this Dharma scene. And getting discouraged by it. Because it doesn't offer us the tangible references that we <clears throat> rely upon for our... Um, for our, uh, our sense of acclaim. All it gives you is more energy and more clarity and less confusion. It gives you a lot of things. But it's, they're not tangible show-off kinds of things where you can hold up your degree or your certification. And so, to encourage investigation, encourage curiosity, the willingness to look with interest, to look where we're blocked, not to deny any longer those points of where we have arrested and contained ourselves and limited ourselves. Because the moment is unlimited in its potential. This moment, this moment, not the past, this moment. If you bring the past forward into this moment, then you will limit this moment. But if we release the thought of the past and abide in the present, this present moment it has unlimited potential. And it is there that our energy flourishes undiminished. And if we have to go back and drag out the skeletons in the closet that keep finding their way into forming the present moment into the past, and let's do it. Let's be done with it. And we should be very interested in cleaning out that closet so that we can have a full embrace of the present moment. So that we can be as fully courageous, as fully open, as fully ourselves as we deserve. That's our birthright. Not what we have made of our birth. That's our birthright. And I wish it for all of us here. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two?
The birds are still chirping. You see, 8.15 at night. Does your heart feel the chirping of the birds? Is it delight? See, for, for us to expose ourselves at that level of transparency to the present moment requires non-resistance, doesn't it? If, you're, if we're thinking about, oh, the day and how awful it was, and that is what you are sitting with, then you're sitting with a resistance and probably investing more in to that resistance by saying the next time I see him, I'm going to tell him what I think. Rather than seeing it as a passing movement and letting the birds in. So if you have any questions or comments, I'd be happy to respond if I can. Yes. Yes. Sure. Uh, the question is about control. He's you're seeing a resistance forming in around that particular display of control, the need to, to maintain um, you, you know, your willful uh, manipulation, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but a, your, your sense of being able to uh, invest your wishes and desires upon the outcomes. That's control, right? Now, we have to be really careful here um, because we can keep, you know, okay, I have a problem with control. Let me take it on, right? Now I have a problem with this. Let me take that. And meanwhile, we stay very safe and insulated by working on our, the projects of ourselves. You see? So you have to, to make this thing work, you have to bring in emptiness. It just doesn't work by any other mechanism than by the door of emptiness. And I wish I could tell you that it worked the other way. But when you set out to solve a problem, a problem of control, a problem of jealousy, a problem of whatever, it doesn't matter, Having a problem and the determination of how you're going to solve this problem keeps you very much intact through the duration of that solution. Keeps you figuring it out and weighing in and doing that. And you're on one side and the problem's on the other and you're just solving the left hand while the right hand is continuing to abide within its own resistance. What we have to do is to show up completely for the need to control. Not try to behavior modify our way through control, but to really show up for this. That means, and I'll show you how it works, 
you watch when you're in the need to control. And you see what's motivating the need to control. All of that is coming up concurrently within the moment. It's not as if you have to do a whole logical, historical reference. You just, in the moment, you'll see that what's motivating the need to control is maybe fear. Right? Or it could be inadequacy. Because you feel that without your imprint on this particular situation, I don't know. It can be a lot of things. Or that, it, or the basic root issue could be that life is all up to you and that you have to maintain that when you were small. You can see the historical roots that your family left you abandoned or I don't know. On and on it will go. The story will never end. But it will show you conclusively why these states of mind are so deeply entrenched and conditioned within us. So it's important, I think, to get that background information so that you can see that it's only background conditioning, not something wrong with you. You've just learned to live life this way for your own sense of protection. Okay, so now you show up for the need to control and you see in the course of that, let's say, that you feel very, unless you're in control, you feel very um, insecure, fearful. So now you're with the fear of things going out of control. That's what keeps you in control, is the fear of things going out of control, the fear of chaos. And when you're touching that, believe me, you're going to feel the chaos and the uncertainty of life. And if you can hold that thing steady, it begins to break apart in you with it. Because you are formed from the resistance to the need to control. If you break apart the root resistance of fear, you start, you start panning out. You start evaporating, so to speak, along with the need to control. And then there's a panic moment. Oh my God, get myself back into control here. So we whip ourselves back into the conditioning so that we won't feel the awkwardness of the spacious sense of me. me. You see? So we, we do that all the time because we sense that if we didn't, something vast here is waiting for us, that we wouldn't be in control of at all. And if that happens, I don't know what would happen, and neither do you. And then we say, well, it's either that or control, and control's not fun, but it's better than that. <laughs> so we logic our way by fear, back into control. And that's what keeps us going. So then we'll work on a control. Okay, I'm going to go to a therapist and I'm going to work on this thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that unless you bring yourself into the picture of it, it's only going to be behavior modification. It's just you're going to change that a little bit and get less controlling. But you'll still have that basic fear of self-desolution. You know, and you'll keep yourself very intact somehow, maybe not obviously. You see? how it works behind the scenes. So we have to go to the Wizard of Oz, pull down the curtain. Okay? And then deal with what's there. So this, the solution to Dharma practice, I mean, we can work and we can work to modify our thoughts and to release this and let go of that. 
But that's not really where the practice, that's an intermediate step and helps us, makes our life more comfortable, makes it a little easier, makes it more content. There's nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't get to the basic root problem. And as long as that basic root problem, which is the heart of resistance, the heart of releasing myself to be what I really am, as opposed to what I believe myself to be, is faced, then there will be, problems will spring up like, you know, like gopher holes. (laughs) Or something. (laughs) Other, yes. Yes, yes sir. Release, relax, relinquish, and rejoin. Those four R's. Release, relax, relinquish, and rejoin. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, those are the path that effort can take to free us from resistance. And each of those are words that do not invite a willful effort. They invite a, an abiding presence. Release, relax, relinquish, and rejoin. And perhaps sometime I'll do a series on those or a talk on, on them. But that's the accords. That's the alignment of how energy can be used to take us to presence rather than to keep forming ourselves in relationship to the object and our problem. Do you see? We have to go back the other way. We relax our way to freedom. That's literally true. That's literally true. But boy, that's the last thing in the world we'll do. We're not empowered in relaxation. Where am I in relaxation, you see? I want to be in here. I want to know my own salvation. I want to know my own enlightenment. I want to be present at the crowning. (laughs) Right? So we carry ourselves right, right along with us. By using exactly the 180 degree wrong strategies. We think we're doing it. That's what I mean that if your energy is not governed by wise wisdom, you'll just keep, keep, will keep creating the very nature of the problem itself through our efforts to solve the problem. And so there has to be wiser than that. We just have to be wiser than that. My job is to show you the way. Your job is to do it. But it can't be done theoretical. It has to be done through your actual experience in life. And I'm more and more convinced that this is where we arrest. We're all very good at listening to talks and reading and having you know, the, a whole map of how this thing unfolds. But when we're called into action, we freeze. We don't allow ourselves to actually take a step in this thing through action. And I think the body holds the mechanism for our salvation, not our mind. And we have to, we, and to embody that wisdom and start moving in that direction and unleashing the resistances through, through the determined curiosity and investigation of the moment is the path at hand for urban dharma teach, uh, urban dharma 
people. Yes. How can we trust that the sense of injustice that we feel is coming from the heart and not from residual views that we're holding on to? How can we trust that the injustice we feel is coming from the heart and not residual views that we feel? Um, Be very... Uh, sensitive to all forms of righteousness, of of um, determined will to you know offset the, to moralizing, right? Uh, you don't when you're the heart is exposed, you will feel the pain. By definition, compassion is an exposed heart to pain. When the heart un protected, sees pain, it feels a compa- it moves in alignment with compassionate, compassionate action. That compassionate action may take the forms of picketing or writing your congressman or going out and serving this per- serving, but it will be done from connection, from the sense of interconnectedness with the person who, not as a, a form of pity for that person, but actual, you just see that this is, you know, that this is just needs to, be, to alleviate pain is the expression, is the activity of compassion. To just, and so it will find its way into doing that. And you'll feel lots of things. You'll feel emotions and all the different... But it won't be divisive. It won't be them and us. It'll be like, what can I do? What can happen here? Now, what's, what's you know, it'll be a, a from clarity, not from uh, anger. And so you just, you'll get a sense of that. And you'll find, like, when you see somebody who's uh, asking for money, at one moment, you may just give it to them. You know, just almost spontaneously. Another moment, you say, ah, I've given too much. You, know, you can feel the drawback. So you begin to see the different things that we impose upon our generosity that create the resistance that cut us off. Uh, and it doesn't mean that compassion will always give the money. But it will never deny the fact of the connection and pretend like there isn't anybody that needs money that is out there. But it may not always act in a romanticized way. You come live with me. <laughs> doesn't doesn't she, right? So I don't know how it'll act, but it'll feel very differently, and it won't be any denial involved in it. Okay, that's. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.